We continue in our study in the book of Job. Thus far, the prologue has given us insight into the character of the various individuals involved, while it sets a stage for the dialogues which will begin in chapter 3. also gives us insight into the scenes in heaven where decisions are made that impact human lives, although humans know nothing of this. In terms of the characters, Job we see as a man of integrity, about whom we are told three times in these two chapters that he was blameless and upright, that he feared God and shunned evil. And that this is true of his character is seen in his response to the two attacks, series of attacks by Satan. Um, after the loss of his possessions and his children, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then after the loss of his own health and the advice from his wife to curse God and die, he asks her, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble and so we see indeed that he is a man of integrity. And then we see of God that he is the creator who delights in his creation and in his creatures, who's not put off by the appearance of Satan when Satan appears in the heavenly council, who reaches out in grace. We see Satan, the cynic, the self-centered cynic, who sees nothing of value or beauty in God's creation. God has to point out to him, have you considered my servant Job? And as a cynical accuser, he always has a ready explanation. When God first mentions Job, Satan says, well, it's because you protect him. And because you protect him, he fears you, and then you feel good because you have someone who fears you. When God mentions Job the second time after the first assault, Satan says, well, it's because you haven't touched his body. If you let me touch his health, then he will curse you to, his face, to your face. <clears throat> and then last Sunday, we met Job's wife who cannot stand to see her, her husband, she is the wife, cannot stand to see her husband in this situation, who would prefer for her husband to die than to continue to suffer. Although she herself has misery of her own. She, he is not the only one who's lost ten children. She has as well. And of the characters that are mentioned, I think God is the one that we cannot understand. Job is a good man. I think we have a handle on that. Satan is a self-centered cynic. We certainly know our share of those. Job's wife is a despairing partner. These three I think we can comprehend. But an all-powerful creator who allows such things to happen to someone who fears him, that we cannot get our minds around. And I think that is what the rest of the book of Job is about. This God that we find so difficult to understand. I would remind you, though, that the book of Job does not provide answers. I don't think that is its intent. It, in, in fact, allows us to ask difficult questions. Last week we saw how that Job asked his wife, Shall we not accept from God good and trouble? And as I was thinking about this this past week, just in a matter of two or three seconds, just sort of a flash through my mind, of different members in this congregation who have experienced real trouble and real difficulties. And I realize that I do not have an answer for you to explain why God has not only given you good, but has also given you great troubles as well. When we began our study in the book of Job, we noticed that the wisdom books, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, 
call us to think hard about such things and to keep our eyes open and to use our common sense and our consciences and not to pull back from the disturbing questions of life. I would also remind you that the book of Job should not be read or studied in a cold or detached manner. We who take our faith seriously cannot afford to do so. We worship the same God that Job worshipped. And this God allowed these horrible things to happen to Job. And he has allowed horrible things to happen to people in this congregation. The book of Job does not give us ready-made answers, but it does allow us to ask these questions. Today we are introduced to Job's friends, the individuals who have come to comfort him in the midst of his difficulties. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 11, we'll read through to the end of the chapter. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. One writer has described this as one of the most moving paragraphs in the whole book of Job. If, for the most part, Job's friends got things wrong, and we will see that in the weeks to come, here at the beginning, they did things right. Briefly about the friends. Like Job, we know that they are not Jews. They are not Hebrews. They're not Israelites. They do not belong to the covenant people of God. Eliphaz is a Temanite from the city of Teman, which is one of the two major cities in the country of Edom, which was founded by Esau, the brother of Jacob. Bildad, the Shuhite, and Shua, we're not sure, but we think may have been as far away as modern-day Iraq, near the Euphrates River. Zophar was from the Amma, uh, between Beirut and Damascus. One from the south, one from the north, and one from the east. They have covenanted together to meet, and then they will go together, and they will seek to sympathize and comfort Job. Just a brief thing about friends, just an aside here. The word that is used for friends here is used in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. It can refer to someone who is a counselor, an intimate counselor, to someone who is party in a legal dispute. That is someone who is on your side in the dispute. It can refer to a close friend. It has been argued that in terms of culture in the ancient world, that friends in the ancient world would solemnize their friendship in a covenant ritual. They would promise to take care of each other in all types of situations and circumstances. The one example we have of this is the relationship between David and Jonathan, where they promise that they will take care of each other and their descendants if anything should happen to one or the other. When we get to chapter 6, Job will accuse these men, his friends, of failing to live up to their obligations in covenant friendship. And it seems to indicate that there was, in fact, an official bond between them. 
A covenant friend was obligated to rescue a friend in time of trouble. Job has not asked for this from them, but this is what they owe him. They are his friends by covenant. By the way, we are told in the scriptures that Abraham is known as the friend of God. And because of our view of friendship, we tend to think, oh, this means he was God's buddy, God's pal. In the Old Testament, it means it's someone that God had a covenant relationship with. I think it's interesting. I think something we should think about in the coming days. How do we view friendship? Do you ever say to someone, I want to be your friend or let's be friends? If I were to say to you, let's be friends, wouldn't you think, well, that's what kids say? You know, adults, we just know that these things sort of happen naturally. But because they happen naturally, in many ways, they don't last. There is no sense of obligation or of covenant where someone sits down and says, I'm going to be your friend. And this is what this means to me. By being your friend, when you're in trouble, you come to me. If I'm in trouble, I will go to you. It's not just this sort of, we'll be buds together and hang out and do things together. There's a real sense, I think, there needs to be a sense of covenant obligation. I remember hearing a tape years ago, and when I first heard it, I was rather put off by it. And considering the speaker, I'm like, well, that's just the way he is. So. But this man taught his children, if you can have one or two friends in your life, you've done well. I thought, well, that's ridiculous. You have plenty of friends. But if you think of friendship as obligation, almost very similar to marriage in, in terms of I enter into covenant with you. I will be your friend through thick and thin. When you need me, when you don't need me, I will be there for you. And these are the friends who come to comfort Job. They meet by agreement. They are going to go. They are going to sympathize. They are going to comfort. And they are shocked at by what they see when they get to Job's town. By the way, I, this will come up time and again in the book of Job. But people have noticed a lot of similarities between Job and the person of Christ. Let me read you a verse. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond any human likeness. This is from Isaiah speaking of Christ. But one could easily take this verse and put it back in Job chapter 2. His friends, by covenant, they know him and they see him and they don't recognize him. He has been so disfigured by the physical affliction that Satan has thrown at him. Some have also pointed out that three wise men come to comfort Job. And have suggested that there were three wise men who came to see Jesus. Actually, we don't know that there were three wise men. We know there were three kinds of gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The friends come and they offer traditional gestures of grief. They begin to weep aloud. They tear their clothes. They sprinkle dust on their head. And they sit on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Here is genuine friendship, one man writes. Here is deep ministry. They are so appalled at the change they see in their friend. The things they do is what you do when somebody dies. 
you weep aloud, you tear your robes, and Orthodox Jews still do that today, and you pour dust on your head. Their friend to them is as good as them. But I find it interesting that they identify with their friend. Remember, Job is in the ash heap. The ash heap is outside of town. That's where they burn garbage and dung. And here come these three men. We would have to assume they had some money to travel such long distances. And they sit there in the ash heap with their friend. One would have to consider not only the disgrace, what are you doing sitting in the garbage pile, but the risk of contagion. Who knows what Job has? Who knows? It might be contagious. But they sit there with their friend. One man has written a book uh, entitled Suffering Presence, and I'm going to talk briefly about this. In it, he tells about an experience he had with a friend whose mother had just committed suicide. Let me read to you what he writes. As often as I have reflected on what happened in that short space of time, I have remembered how inept I was in helping Bob. I did not know what could or should be said. I did not know how to help him start sorting out such a horrible event so he could go on. All I could do was be present. But time has helped me to realize that this was all he wanted, namely my presence. For as inept as I was, my willingness to be present was a sign that this was not an event so horrible that it drew us away from other contact. Life could go on. I now think that at this time God granted me the marvelous privilege of being a presence in the face of profound pain and suffering, even though, or even when I did not appreciate the significance of being present. I do think there is a call for presence when people are in the midst of great difficulty. And it is a service. It is a service of vulnerability. You see his friends sitting there with him. They are risking their lives. They're risking their reputations. But that doesn't matter. He is their friend, and they will be present with him. They are vulnerable to what he is vulnerable to. They are willing to suffer what he suffers. They don't want to replace him. They're not saying, here, Job, let us suffer for you, because that would be, as, that would be an insult. That would be saying, Job, you actually can't handle the suffering. We are much more capable, so let us bear this burden. No, they are present with him in the midst of his suffering. One writer says, presence involves exposing oneself to what the sufferer is exposed to. And being with the other in that vulnerability. So there is a place for presence. But there's something else. Not only are they present, they are silent. In what one writer beautifully calls the sacrament of silence. Why should you speak when words are useless? Job's friends did not have to speak. I think any words would have been wrong. Job knew they were there, and that was enough. But I would suggest to you that Americans have a real problem practicing this sacrament of silence. I think it is part of our culture that we, we just find it very difficult to be silent. Um, and let me talk to you briefly about this today. I think, first of all, as a culture, we are a culture of talkers. Uh, thinking that what we have to say is important and that people need to hear what we have to say. And just look at the explosion of talk television, talk radio, uh, where people never seem to get tired of hearing other people talk or they never seem to get tired of hearing themselves talk. A columnist with the L.A. Times years ago wrote, 
that it used to be that people were ashamed to talk about certain things. In today's culture, people feel ashamed if they don't talk about such things. The Bible says a lot about talking. Proverbs 10. When words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, let your words be few. Again in Proverbs, Proverbs 27. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint. And a man of understanding is even tempered. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. But in our culture, we love to talk. I would also suggest, secondly, that we prefer to talk to listening. We would rather, much rather talk than listen. So much so that I find oftentimes that people ask a question and don't wait for the answer. There's an amazing stage play that was made into a movie uh, called Wit about an English professor who uh, has cancer and is put through just a, a brutal uh, series of uh, experimental drugs to see if it can uh, arrest the cancer. It cannot. She has a young doctor who used to be her student. And every time he comes, he goes, how are you doing? How are you doing? Every, I mean, and no matter what she says, he says, good. He's not listening. He's merely talking. And I would suggest that that very much is the way that we are oftentimes. There is a discipline to listening. And I think many in this culture have rejected that. As God's people, we should embrace the discipline of listening. One of my favorite verses from the book of Psalms, Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. James writes, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I would suggest to you that in our culture we have reversed the order. We are quick to anger, quick to speak, and very slow to listen. Thirdly, I think we make the mistake of thinking that words can convey everything. That words can fully communicate everything we want to get across. I've mentioned this before. Uh, one of the great ballerinas in the 20th century, after a, a particularly good, a great performance, uh, people were just sort of in awe, was backstage afterwards and uh, she was interviewed by a journalist. And the journalist asked her, so what did that dance mean? And she answered, if I could have said it, I wouldn't have needed to dance it. We are so addicted to words that we think it is the only means of communication. Remember the words of Francis of Assisi as he sent men out to preach. He gave instructions. Preach the gospel by all means possible. And if it's really necessary, use words. My sister was here last week and spoke to me a bit about my lack of understanding of nonverbal communication. Uh, I think as Americans, we think everything can be verbalized, and it really cannot. It really cannot. And I find this addiction to talk really somewhat puzzling in our culture uh, for two reasons. First of all, people talk more today than they used to. Um, Mrs. Brown is older than the rest of us. I think she can back me up, talk to her afterwards. 
Uh, people talk a lot more, I think, now than they used to. But they have smaller vocabularies. They do. And the use of profanity, which is not the worst thing in the world, but the use of profanity reflects this absence of vocabulary. And then people use words the wrong way. Uh, Mike Tyson, after his last fight, said that now he would just go into Bolivian. <laughs> Do you mean oblivion? And so I find it strange that people are dying to talk, but they don't have vocabularies. I also find it ironic because in our culture, when you think of it, image is more important than the word. How many commercials have you ever watched for the first time and not had a clue to the very end of the commercial what they were selling? They're just throwing images at you. And maybe it is because we're overwhelmed with images that we're trying to catch up with the words, that we are almost in desperation trying to talk as much as, as, the, as we are bombarded by images. Words cannot convey everything. I think we need to understand that. I think also, fourthly, and I think this is really arrogance on our part, we think we know how other people feel. That we have the ability to fully comprehend what somebody else is feeling. Now, you could argue, and I would argue that this is either the result of arrogance, I can know how you feel, or it is the belief that all experience is so similar that, that if I've experienced something similar to you, then I know how you feel. Most of you know that I recently lost my father. And some of you have lost your fathers. I think it would be sheer arrogance of me to suggest to you that I know how you felt when you lost your father or that you know how I feel having lost my father. Beyond the fact, the sorrow at loss, we all have different histories and different stories to tell. So that I can't even fully understand how my brother and my two sisters feel. We've lost the same father, but our stories are different. Have you ever heard a conversation like this, uh, either being involved or overheard a conversation where person A is talking to person B and person B says, so how are you doing? And said, well, I've just recently had this difficult thing happen to me. And they start to talk about it. And person B says, that reminds me, I went through this and I and they begin to it's like, excuse me, it's not your turn to talk. You know, this person is trying to tell you what they've gone through. But this person uses it as an excuse to say, well, yeah, it, this is a crude example. But if someone were to say to me, Damon, how, how have you been? I, said, well, I recently lost my father. Well, you know, I remember when my pet dog died and I was really sad. And as much as to say my experience is the same as yours and we share experiences on some level, but we are very different. And I think I, I love the fact that they sit there and they don't say anything. They don't say, Job, we know how you feel. Because they don't know how he feels. I think we make a mistake when we suggest that to other people. I think we're also arrogant enough oftentimes to think that we know what to say. That we have exactly the right words. Uh, last summer, I got together with some of my classmates from high school and saw a classmate I hadn't seen since we graduated. And we spent some time together, got to meet his wife, Gia got to meet him. And we were going to get together again this year. He lives in Chicago, 
And he was saying, everyone, let's meet in Chicago next year. There's some great jazz clubs and we can all hang out. And so in March, I got an email saying, OK, we're going to meet together again in July in Southern California. And I said, well, no, Bill said we're going to go to Chicago. Somebody emailed Bill and he said, I'm sorry, but it's not possible. My wife and I just lost our oldest child. She's 19 years old on a college trip in Wales and was walking along a trail and fell off a cliff. Their oldest child, their first child. Okay, I'm a pastor. I've been trained for the ministry. I have no idea what to say about it. I have no idea what to say about it. And so I wrote Bill and Ruth and I said, words fail me. You will be in our prayers. What else can I say? Do I think I have the words that will heal somebody's heart? God in his grace may give us the words, but maybe we should wait a while before we open our mouths. The last reason I think that we are addicted to talk or why the sacrament of silence is so absent from our culture. The bottom line, we are we are uncomfortable with silence. As a culture, there is little place for silence. You get in the car, you turn on the radio. You know, you go to get in the house, turn on the TV. I had my teeth cleaned the other week, and I was, I was sitting in the chair. I was like, something's different here. What's, oh, the radio wasn't on. I mean, you know, you have to have music to have your teeth cleaned by. Uh, years ago, I saw a documentary about skiing resorts, and this one person was complaining. He said, you know, people come up here to ski in this magnificent place. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And what do they do? They have Walkmans and they put on headphones. He's like, this isn't Disneyland. You know, just ski and enjoy the beauty of the silence. I don't think we like silence. I think we are very uncomfortable. I think we're convinced that every life needs a soundtrack. That needs to be playing 24-7. Job's friends are silent for seven days and seven nights. I don't even know if I can do that. But they sit there with him. They are present with him. They risk their reputations. They risk their health. And they say nothing. They are simply there with him. I think there is much for us to learn from their example. Unfortunately, they don't keep their mouths shut. That's what the rest of the book of Job is about. But at least for seven days and seven nights... They did the right thing as they comforted their friend. Beginning in chapter three, we now move to poetry. Chapters one and two are prose. They're telling us a story. Now the rest of it will be a series of dialogues. So let me wrap up chapters one and two, this this prologue. And the Lord willing, next week we will launch into chapter three. What has been the purpose of these first two chapters? Well, I think, first of all, it allows us as the reader, not Job, And not as friends, because that's what the whole dialogue will be. It allows us as the readers to know something, something really important. And that is that not all suffering is the result of sin. This will be one of the great issues in this book. But we know better because we've read the prologue. We know the story about this man of integrity, about God, about Satan, and Satan's afflictions against Job. Now, we do know of people in the Bible who were punished for their sins. Miriam was struck with leprosy. 
because she challenged Moses' authority. Admires and Sapphira were struck dead because they lied. Uh, some in the Corinthian church, we are told, uh, became ill, and some died because of their actions toward communion, toward the Lord's Supper. But the book of Job and other places in Scripture makes it very clear that we should not too quickly make the connection between suffering and sin. We are prepared. We're ready now to go to battle with these friends because we know the truth. We know that twice God has said to Satan, this is a man of integrity. And we know that Job did not sin in what he, how he responded to this. We know this. And now we are prepared. We're armed for battle for the rest of this book. Secondly, we're also instructed that Job is not being disciplined. He's not being taught a lesson. But somehow he might learn the error of his way. His friends will suggest this time and time again. That obviously he's done something wrong and God's trying to teach him a lesson. Uh, now, Job is not suffering because of sin. He is not suffering because God is trying to teach him a lesson. Thirdly, this prologue allows us to view the problem of suffering in a wider context. In the widest context possible. The presence of God. And the presence of evil in the world. There are larger issues in the book of Job than the problem of suffering. Although that is a big issue. I'm not trying to minimize it in any way. How is a person to maintain faith in God in the face of suffering? That is the question that the book of Job, I think, seeks to answer. And lastly, I think the prologue, by going from earth to heaven to earth to heaven to earth, sort of gives us a sense, uh, the beginning of a sense, that what happens in our lives are vehicles for God's purpose to be carried out. That the sufferings that human beings go through has purpose. It has meaning as God has purpose and meaning in the world. The Lord willing, we will see this as we go through. One person has noted uh, the book of Job is the first draft of the gospel story for it shows a man who bore his cross before Christ. Job went through great suffering and Christ's suffering had a purpose and Job's suffering has a purpose as well. But then we will come to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Job will say, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant that never saw the light of day? And Job will pour out his heart to his friends. One writer has said, from this point on, the book of Job is not for the timid. I don't know about you, the first two chapters haven't been very easy for me. But they have prepared us as now Job will speak of his sufferings and his friends will suggest answers, answers that are not right. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time where everything seems so casual. People think that they are friends because they call each other by first name. There's no sense of covenant. We live in a time when people talk but do not listen. 
a time when we find it hard, we are to be silent, to be quiet. We are surrounded by so much technology that to find a place of quietness seems really difficult. And oftentimes we, we really don't want to. We are so used to the noise. We live in a time of quick answers. When we have forgotten that presence is friendship itself. It is ministry itself. To merely be present, we don't have to say anything. We thank you that you sent your son. And though he said many things while he was here, above all, he was present with us. He was Emmanuel, God with us. May you open our eyes to see that that is part of our call to be salt in a world of decay, to be light in a world of darkness, to be present, and not always to speak. We thank you for Job and his integrity. We thank you for his friends, and at least their initial wisdom, their friendship, their willingness to risk reputation, to risk health, to risk it all, to sit in the ash heap with their friend. May we take this to heart. And now as we leave this place, may your grace and your spirit go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.